Lord, we thank you that uh, we can come today to Jesus. We can come to him with our sin. We can come to him with our weakness. We can come to him with our guilt and our shame. And Jesus stands ready today to receive us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. Whether we are in need of salvation or whether we are in need of that ongoing cleansing that believers need on a daily basis, Lord, we know that the work on the cross is enough. It's sufficient. Father, as your law is preached today, I pray that you would use your law to show sinners their need for salvation. For those among us today who may not know you, who may not yet be born again, might the preaching of your law expose their need and intensify their feelings of guilt and conviction, not so that they hate themselves, but so that they would rather look to you in faith and repentance. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, who have been washed by the blood of Christ, who have been made alive and made new, I pray that as your law is preached today, that it would make us increasingly grateful for the cross. And I pray that your law would show us how we can live lives that express our gratitude and thanks to you, the one who loved us and gave yourself for us. So Father, bless the preaching of your word this morning. Open hearts to receive all that you would reveal. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. It's been several weeks since we have been in our series through Exodus and specifically the Ten Commandments. Uh, Last week we had a building dedication service. We took a little break from this series to celebrate what God's been doing here at Redemption Hill. The week before that, uh, Stephen preached from Philippians, and the week before that was a baptism service. So it's been a while. Somebody said, so are you done with Exodus? said, no, we're going back to it. We're going back into it. And today brings us to the eighth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Now we live in a time today, uh, if you're paying attention, that is dominated by misinformation. Um, A man named Chuck Colson said several years back that we live in a post-truth society. And he's right. It's a post-truth society. What he means by that is that lies and deceit are prevalent. They seem to dominate the landscape. We see this in politics, don't we? We see misleading and malicious speech that's really weaponized in order to win elections. Why does this happen? Well, very simply because... Acquiring and maintaining power is the goal. And when that's your goal, when that's your highest priority, then truth becomes a casualty of your political agenda. You're willing to lie. You're willing to accuse. You're willing to slander if it helps you get where you want to be. We don't just see it in politics. This is at every layer of society. We see it in the media. The term fake news has become um, common verbiage over the last few years. It seems like everyone is either selling fake, fake news or accusing the other side of spreading fake news, whether it's traditional media corporations or whether it's independent journalists or your friend on Facebook. It's hard to know what to believe anymore. But as much as we see deception and falsehood out there, politics, media, the world, it's easy to point fingers. This is also a relational reality. The truth is too often distorted, too often compromised, silenced, twisted in the workplace and in churches and in homes. And this distortion of truth, the prevalence of lies and deceit, it is having a devastating impact on our society. 
It is corrosive. It destabilizes. It erodes trust. It heightens our suspicions of one another. It produces an attitude of cynicism towards everything and everyone, and it ultimately leads to despair. You see, all of life is supposed to be built on a foundation of truth. And if you take away that foundation, if you take away truth, then everything starts to fall apart. God's word speaks to this sinful tendency within the heart of man to distort the truth. God's law directly addresses it and exposes lying, exposes deceit and deception as not just being harmful to people, but even worse, being offensive to our holy God. As God gathered his children to himself here at Mount Sinai, these people he's just rescued from Egypt, and he brings them to that mountain to give them these 10 words, these 10 commandments. He's laying forth for them a covenantal expectation. If they're going to be in a relationship with him, then this is how he wants them to live. This is how they must operate as those who have been recipients of his grace. And this law that he gives them, these 10 words, help to form the moral foundation for a new society, a new nation that would truly be operating under God. And among the things that God commands them, one of the top 10, if you will, is this, the importance of telling the truth. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What is the meaning of this commandment? We often think of this commandment as meaning sort of in a broad sense, don't lie, don't tell lies. And that is certainly a proper application of this commandment. But it actually has a more specific emphasis. It does not simply say, do not lie. It says that in other places in Scripture, even other places in the law, like in Leviticus. But this commandment, one of the ten, it doesn't say do not lie. It says specifically, more particularly this, do not bear false witness. What does that mean? A witness is someone who's called upon to testify. A witness is someone who is asked to report the facts of the matter, something they've seen, something they have direct personal knowledge of. And it really gives us the idea of a legal setting, civil processes that are in place. You know, today we have many different types of evidence that can be part of any given investigation. Emails, audio recordings, things like fingerprints or maybe even security camera footage. Those are all highly reliable forms of evidence in a court of law. But one of the oldest forms of evidence, one that ancient legal processes relied heavily on because they didn't have all that technology that we have today, they relied on eyewitness testimony, someone who saw what happened and could testify to the truth. That person would often be sworn to truthfulness, often in the name of their God. Similarly to what we do today, people are called to lay a hand on the Bible even and swear to Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. So to bear false witness is then what we would know today in the legal realm as perjury. Falsifying information while under oath. And this act of bearing false witness, it is devastating to the legal process because it obscures the truth. 
And it results in something that is terrible. It's either bearing false witness results either in the guilty escaping justice or it results in the innocent coming to suffer wrongful punishment. When truth is compromised, justice is perverted. So while this commandment is more specific than don't lie, it has to do with this legal proceeding, bearing false witness. It does, however, speak to the importance and necessity of telling the truth. Because it's not just the courtroom where truth matters. It's not just the courtroom where justice must be upheld. I want to share this morning three reasons why truthful speech is commanded by God. Three reasons why it's so important for us as the people of God to speak truthfully. The first reason is this. Number one, truthful speech honors God and reflects his character. It's important that we be truthful in our speech because telling the truth honors God and reflects his character. Remember, all of these commandments, they're not arbitrary rules that God is making up. They flow directly from who he is and what he is like. And as those who are made to reflect his image, as those who are supposed to to reflect his character, as those who have been saved like him or, or saved by him, we're supposed to become like him. We're supposed to be like the one we worship. Ephesians 5.1 urges us to be imitators of God as beloved children. And our God is a God of truth. Titus 1 verse 2 says, God never lies. Numbers 23, 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie. 1 Samuel 15, 29 tells us that the glory of Israel will not lie. God is true and he always tells the truth. Lying is contrary to God's nature. And if you read scripture, the record of God throughout eternity, his track record throughout history is one of being perfectly and consistently and completely truthful. He is always true. God has revealed this about himself, not only through the written word, but also through the living word, his son, Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate. In John 14, 6, Jesus says what? I am the way and the what? The truth and the life. He is the embodiment of truth. Revelation 1 verse 5 describes Jesus Christ as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Unlike men who bear false witness, unlike men who don't always tell the truth, Jesus is the faithful witness. The embodiment of truth himself. Both in his divinity and in his humanity, Jesus is perfectly true. And all who follow Jesus, all who worship him as Lord, are to become like him. Remember, God's will is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, which means we must be a people of the truth. 1 John 1.7 says that we are to walk in the light, not in the darkness. As we seek to become increasingly more and more like Jesus... That means we must have a wholehearted commitment to speaking the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Lying, false speech, deception of any sort, including bearing false witness, that means that this is the opposite of godliness. It's actually satanic. When we lie, we follow in the footsteps of the devil. When we lie, we advance his agenda. 
Listen to what Jesus said to those who wanted to kill him in John chapter 8. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Listen, the devil hates God. And therefore, he is an enemy of truth. The devil's tactics are deception and deceit. His weapons are lies and distortions. His aim is to sow confusion And that is not the model for us. We're not to follow his example. We're not to conform to his way of life. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Listen, truthful speech honors God. It reflects his character. And that's the first reason why it's essential for us to be people of the truth to be absolutely truthful in what we say. But there's a second reason this morning I want to share with you why truthful speech is commanded by God. Secondly, truthful speech expresses fear of God and love for neighbor. And we'll spend a little bit more time here. When we tell the truth, when we refuse to lie, when we refuse to bear false witness, we are expressing something that's in our heart. Fear of God and love for neighbor. Jesus said in Matthew 12 that out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks. What's inside comes out in what we say. When we tell the truth, we show what's really in our hearts. We show that our hearts are rightly oriented towards God and towards man when we speak the truth. Speaking the truth, first of all, shows fear of God, the fear of God. This is a motive for us to tell the truth. Scripture tells us that God will judge the slanderer, the liar, and the one who bears false witness. Proverbs chapter chapter 6 tells us about how God feels towards those who are liars, towards those who bear false witness. Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. This is poetry. And these two lines are, are intensifying the statement. Hatred is intensified by this word abomination. Six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. What are they? Haughty eyes, that's pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. Abomination is a strong word. It's a word we don't use very often. But there's really not a stronger word in Scripture that can be used to describe God's absolute hatred, his complete revulsion, the depth of his anger towards this sin. It describes his complete rejection of it. It is an abomination to him. God's judgment of two liars who bear false witness in Acts chapter 5 shows us the fearful reality of his judgment upon this sin. We don't have time to go through the whole story, but in Acts 5, there's a married couple in the church who sell a piece of property, and they come and lay the money at the apostles' feet, and they bear false witness. They say something that's not true, claiming that the full price has been bought and donated 
towards needy people in the church, given to the Lord. The reality was only part of it had been given. First, Ananias comes in, and Peter challenges him. He says, why have you lied, not to men, but to the Holy Spirit? He says, you've lied against God. And because of that, God took his life. A few minutes later, his wife comes in, and they give her a chance to tell the truth. They ask, is this the sum that you sold the property for? And she says, yes. She doubles down on their lie. She, too, is rebuked by Peter. He says, why are you testing God? He says, listen, you're lying to me, but that's not the issue. The issue is your sin against God, and God also takes her life. Both of them are buried that day, and the result of that, it's said twice in this chapter, is that great fear came upon all the church. Fear, because God judges lying. When we tell the truth, it evidences that we fear God. When we don't, when we lie, when we bear false witness, when we bend the truth, when we deceive others with our words, it shows us we're not at that moment operating in the fear of God. Listen, friend, you may be able to deceive men. We've all been lied to, haven't we? And we've all deceived others. But you cannot deceive God. He knows. He sees. You cannot trick him. You cannot throw him off the trail of the truth. And he does not wink at sin. Those who lie evidence a lack of the fear of God. Those who fear the Lord above all else will be compelled to be truthful. Speaking the truth evidences fear of God, the right orientation towards him, but it also gives evidence of love towards neighbor. It shows a right orientation towards man. Notice in Exodus chapter 20, there's a specific phrase here in this verse. You shall not bear false witness, not just in general, although that's true, but you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, against your neighbor. So again, this is something more specific than lying. The commandment here is explicitly forbidding false words spoken about other people, lies that incriminate others, words that blame, words that accuse, words that condemn, words that assign motives. The impact, therefore, of bearing false witness is not just that it's some abstract moral error that's just sort of wrong in and of itself. It's more than that. It affects people. It affects people. Bearing false witness is a crime against neighbor, against our fellow man. Think about it this way. Why do people bear false witness? Why would a politician lie about his opponent? Why would a journalist withhold key information and emphasize partial truths? Why would someone lie about a coworker? Why would someone spread gossip in the neighborhood or accuse someone at school of something that they didn't do? Well, there's many possible motives. Jealousy, maybe wanting revenge. Maybe it's a, a lust for power or influence. Maybe it's greed, trying to get something out of it for personal gain. But whatever the motive is for bearing false witness against your neighbor, it's not love, that's for sure. It's not love. Bearing false witness does show a kind of love, but it's not the kind of love we're commanded to show for others. It really shows love for self. Bearing false witness against neighbor perverts the justice due to others, wrecks their reputation, and all so that you can benefit so that you can benefit at their expense. Now, you may never commit perjury in a court of law. 
at the Douglas County Courthouse or in Topeka, Kansas. But let me ask you about the court of public opinion because that's the court that we spend more time in, isn't it? The Ninth Commandment prohibits, listen, all forms of slander. Slander in any context, whether it be at work, whether it be among the family, whether it be in the church, or whether it be in the public square. Slander is maybe a word we don't use very often, but the Bible speaks much about it, and we need to understand it. Slander is malicious misinformation. In fact, the, the Greek word for slander, blasphemia, it's the word we get blasphemy from, it has the idea of defamation, evil speaking, uh, railing accusations is how it's translated sometimes. And we can better understand what slander is when we recognize what slander does. Slander destroys the reputation of another person, destroys it. And that's a precious thing. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. A person's name, a person's reputation is a precious thing. Martin Luther wrote in his catechism centuries ago that a reputation is something quickly stolen but not quickly returned. The damage that is done by our words is not easily undone. James speaks about this when he talks about the tongue being like a spark that can set on fire a whole forest, that it's full of deadly poison. Mark Rooker comments on this commandment. He says, really connecting this commandment to the others around it, he says, false testimony is tantamount to character assassination and so constitutes another form of killing. It steals a man's reputation and then kills it in the public eye. That's why the ninth commandment, to not bear false witness, lies so close to the commandments against murder and the commandments against stealing. You see, all it takes are a few devastating words, spoken, typed, a few words that can undermine a person's reputation, that will destroy people's trust in them and cast suspicion over them. And Scripture categorically condemns slander. It's in the list of abominations that Proverbs 6 says the Lord hates. Psalm 15 tells us that slander is something that must be put away in order to have fellowship with God. The psalmist writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. It must be put away. If we are going to have fellowship with God, if we're going to enjoy his nearness, Slander is also the mark of a fool. It's not, a wise, not the mark of a wise or mature believer. Proverbs 10.18 says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. It's not just foolish, it's dangerous because it earns God's judgment. Psalm 101 verse 5 says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy Slander is defiling. Jesus says in Mark 7, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, 
deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. When you spread slander, when you destroy another person with your words, you're defiling yourself. Slander corrupts. It grieves the Holy Spirit, and it is to be put away from us. We see this in Colossians 3, 1 Peter 2, 1. We see it in Ephesians 4, where Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Listen, if you fear God and if you love others, then you will speak truthfully and you will renounce all forms of slander against your neighbor. Truthful speech evidences the fear of God and also an appropriate love for neighbor. The second table of the law is summed up as this, love your neighbor as yourself. And that requires that we refuse to bear false witness against our neighbor. There's a third reason why truthful speech is important. Number three, truthful speech also upholds justice and due process. It upholds justice and due process. And this is important. It's important, biblically speaking. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Both. God cares about justice. He is serious about true justice. God is just and he is a just judge. And he wants his people, likewise, to be just and to uphold true justice. This obviously requires us to tell the truth. But it also means that we ought to be a people who demand and expect the truth. And a people who refuse to participate in behavior that minimizes or obscures the truth. Because when we do that, again, when truth suffers, so does justice. And if we're going to uphold due process, if we're going to uphold and maintain true biblical justice then we must be a people who tell the truth and we must not allow those who bear false witness to succeed. We see examples of due process throughout scripture. One such example is in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 15. Moses writes, if you hear in one of your cities, this is speaking to Israel and telling them how to enforce the law that God had given them requiring true worship, pure worship. He says, if you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword. There's a death penalty for idolatry in Israel. And they are not to hesitate to execute true justice in God's economy, in this theocracy, if they discover idolatry. But before they pull the trigger, before they draw the sword, they must be absolutely certain that what they have heard is indeed true. Due process must take place. They're supposed to 
inquire and make search and ask diligently. Three times Moses doubles down, making sure they understand what they need to do before they take steps of action. He says, if it be true and certain, then you are to render justice. Moses recognizes this fact. It's very easy to accuse people of something so that they suffer consequences because you have a personal agenda. If you hate your neighbor, if you want revenge on your neighbor, if you're jealous of your neighbor, if your neighbor has something that you want, well, it might be very easy then to get them in hot water to advance your own purposes. But the people of God are supposed to uphold due process and protect true justice. This is very practical for us. A commitment to truth means that we need to wait to render judgment. We need to fully investigate a matter before we jump to conclusions. One of the easiest ways for us to bear false witness is to repeat accusations, to accept them as true before we've heard the whole story. Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears it, it is folly and shame. Too often Christians do that. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. Our legal courts in the United States claim to operate on a principle of innocent until proven guilty. That's not something we invented. That ethic is drawn from Scripture. But too often the court of public opinion operates on a different principle, the principle of guilty until proven innocent. All it takes is a mere accusation to destroy someone's reputation. And we ought not to be the type of people who participate in that sort of thing. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's funny, that used to be the world's famous verse to quote to Christians. Seems like in the last few years, they've conveniently forgotten that one. Because now what's in vogue is judging and condemnation. But listen, what this verse is telling us is not that we never render judgment, but that we must be very careful with the type of judgment we render. If you are hasty to judge others, if you are quick to believe rumors about someone else, if you are easily convinced by slander, then don't be surprised when others quickly render such judgments on you. When you are the one being accused when you are the one being slandered. Listen, we are supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, which means believing the best and requiring clear and verifiable evidence, not just hearsay, before rendering judgment. The ninth commandment underscores the essential connection between truth and justice. You can't have justice unless truth prevails. And for any society to function for true justice to prevail. The Lord knows that we need to be warned and instructed, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the meaning of this verse. I'm gonna share with you this morning four points of application, what we need to do with this. This is very straightforward. Number one, I want to call us as a church today to renounce the sin of slander. Renounce the sin of slander. This is an aspect of repentance. To truly repent of something means we renounce it, we call it what it is, we denounce it, and we turn away from it. And we need to renounce the sin of slander. We slander when we share partial truth. 
We slander when we share truth prematurely. We could put it this way. Spin is sin. It's sin. We need to renounce it. We slander when we share something that is true, but we share it with the wrong person at the wrong time and for the wrong reason. You may be tempted to say things that are technically true, but it is slanderous because it's shared for the purpose of destroying someone else. We need to renounce such speech. We slander when we share with other people hunches as fact. When we share assumptions as certainties. When we assign motives and claim to know other people's intentions. That is slander. We're bearing false witness. We need to be humble and be very careful in what we say about other people. Not sharing our hunches as fact. Not sharing our assumptions as certainties. Not assigning motives and claiming that we know their intentions. We slander when we perpetuate rumors. And when we share as fact things that have not been verified. We need to avoid all such speech. And there is no shortage of opportunities for us to engage in this kind of sin. It requires great diligence, great resolve. It requires that we fear God and that we love other people if we're going to renounce the sin of slander. You know, my wife tells our kids kind of a, a simple threefold test that we should ask ourselves before we say something. And I don't think this is original to her. I forgot to ask you where you found it. It's been said before, but it's good. And so it's not ours, but it is good. And she always tells her kids, is it true, is it kind, and is it necessary? Very simple. It's not a Bible verse, but it does help us apply Bible verses. Is it true? Is it true? Is what you're saying actually true? Not that you feel it's true, not that you think it's true, but is it true? We don't share feelings or conjecture as fact. Is it kind? Is it kind? What's the goal in me saying what I'm about to say? Is my goal vindictive? Is it coming out of bitterness and anger? Is it coming out of a desire to control or manipulate? Or is it coming out of love and a desire to build people up? Is it kind? What's the goal of sharing this? And then is it necessary? Not everything that's true needs to be said. Is this person part of the solution? Do they really need to know? Or am I just addicted to sharing juicy information? Or do I have some sort of need for validation? Am I just wanting to get something off my chest so I feel better? Is it necessary? Those are good questions we should ask ourselves. But it's not just the things we say that we need to be careful about. We also need to refuse to listen. Refuse to listen to slanderous words. Refuse to hear it. Don't listen to it. And this is admittedly a difficult thing because while it's one thing to control what we say, it's almost impossible to try to manage what other people say. And there's an appeal to hearing gossip, to hearing slander. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. There's something seductive and appealing about being on the inside, getting a scoop, being the first to know. But we need to say no to this temptation to listen to and hear things that we should not be listening to. You see, slander always originates from someone who has an agenda. But this slander is then perpetuated when gullible people hear it and then pass it on and they spread it. Slander is like a virus. We've thought way too much over the last year and a half about viruses and how they work and how contagion spreads. 
We know it starts in one place. Maybe a lab, maybe a bat, who knows, right? It starts one place, but it very quickly spreads. And once it gets out, it's very hard to control. Slander is like that. If you listen to slander and gossip, although you are saying nothing, you are now implicated in this sin. You're now part of the problem and perpetuating the sin. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, he that raises a slander, this is the speaker, carries the devil in his tongue. He that receives it carries the devil in his ear. It's very pastoral and powerful application of this truth. We should not speak slanderous words, but we should not receive them and hear them either. Listen, the spark of gossip or slander should be quickly quenched in a church that is saturated by the fear of God and the love of other people. It should find no traction here. Just like there should be a litmus test for whether or not to speak, we should also have tests for whether or not we should listen, whether or not we should hear someone. As someone starts to share these things with you, just stop them and ask, why are you sharing this with me? Why are you sharing this with me? Friend, be aware, be careful, beware of those who might be recruiting you to their side. Supposedly, they're just venting or complaining, maybe even they're sharing a prayer request, right? That's a great way to wrap it. But often, the people need to be talking to God and not you about something that frustrates them. They need to be talking to God about their bitterness and their pain rather than talking to you. Ask, why are you sharing this with me? What's the goal here? We need to ask them, have you gone to this person to address it with them? If there is an issue of sin in the church, then we're supposed to go and confront those things directly. If you have an issue with your brother, you go address it. And you don't go to others and bring them into the process until that person has already been addressed and refused to listen. There's a proper way to handle sin and offenses in the church. You need to ask this question, am I really part of the solution here? Because if not, this should not be shared. Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. That's how you put out the fire. You don't listen to it. We need to renounce the sin of slander. Don't spread it. Don't listen to it. The second point of application, we need to refuse to spread misinformation. Refuse to spread misinformation. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. Just personally, don't think, about, don't think about social media, don't think about our culture, just think about self for a minute. What is it about our hearts that is so drawn to gossip? What is it about our hearts that's so easily drawn towards misinformation, that's so interested to know what people are saying and what might be going on? Why is it that our minds are such fertile soil for sloppy journalism or sensational claims, and even at times conspiracy theories. Why is it that that has such traction with us? I think there's a kind of pride that pops up. When, when people are, are sucked into these things and they start spreading misinformation, there's a kind of pride because we like to be on the inner circle, don't we? We like to be the enlightened ones. Nobody else knows what's going on, but I do. We like to be the first to know. We like to be the ones that get the credit for turning the lights on for everybody else. There's something about that that honestly appeals to the flesh. And it makes it very hard for us not to speculate, not to jump to conclusions, not to always try to connect the dots, and not to latch on to something that 
seems revelatory. But it's not just our pride that makes it difficult not to spread misinformation. It's also fear. It's fear, isn't it? Because there's a reason to be suspicious. I mean, think about it. We know as Christians that there is a great conspiracy. There is a devil who hates God. He is organized. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against all of these principalities and powers. He is currently the God of this age, the God of this world. And he's pulling a lot of strings and pushing a lot of buttons. So we know that Satan is the father of lies and he's been scheming since the beginning of the world to deceive people and destroy anything that is good and reflects God's glory. We know that. We know that our government is corrupt. We know that the other side plays dirty. We know all those things. It's true. But listen, there's a difference between being wise, being on guard, being a realist about those things, and being paranoid. That's fear. That's fear. When a person becomes paranoid, when they become controlled by fear, they start to see everything and everyone as a threat. They start seeing everything as being connected. They start seeing everything in life as part of an organized plot. And when you start thinking that way, while you, it may seem more safe, you know, to play it safe and just always assume, you're actually in just as much danger as the naive person who's clueless about everything that's going on around us. And the reason for that is that both people, the person who's completely naive to what's going on and the person who's paranoid, neither are really walking in the truth. Neither are living in reality. So we need to beware of pride and fear in our own hearts because those things will cause us to get sucked into things and start spreading misinformation, which becomes a violation of the ninth commandment, bearing false witness. We need to beware our addiction to whistleblowing and breaking news. We need to be cautious. We need to be thorough. Remember due process, verification, Listen, caution in believing certain claims is wisdom. It's wisdom. It's not willful ignorance. It is wisdom to be cautious. Don't mistake being careful for being cowardly. Don't equate reckless speech with courage. Christians, we need to know that we will be held accountable for every word we speak, every email that we forward, every post we make on social media. So we need to refuse to spread misinformation. Guard your heart. Make sure it's not pride or fear or foolishness that's getting you sucked in. Third, I want to encourage you to resolve to uphold the process of justice and due process. Now, this is going to be very difficult for us today. Again, we, we see things. We see a video. We hear a tearful testimony. We instantly feel this emotional pressure, and we feel great peer pressure from the world around us to weigh in and to denounce injustice of various kinds. We're told that we must be the first to champion the rights of victims. But listen, sometimes, sometimes there is more to the story. Sometimes there's another video from another angle that shows what happened right before the incident we've seen. Sometimes there's additional testimony from other eyewitnesses. And sometimes that evidence sheds more light and actually changes our perception of what really happened. That's happened many times. Some of us perhaps even regret things we've said, conclusions we've reached 
because later more information comes out. Listen, in order to honor the ninth commandment, we need to refuse the temptation and even the social pressure to weigh in and cast judgment prematurely. Now, this is going to be hard for us, and here's why. It's going to be hard because you're going to be accused of not believing victims. You're going to be accused of not caring about justice. You're going to be accused of not having compassion. And who among us wants to be accused of any of those things? But listen, I would rather suffer the condemnation of men than the condemnation of God for violating the ninth commandment and rendering judgment that is wrong. Slow judgment, rightly rendered, is still just. It is just. But rash judgments destroy a person's reputation and a person's name and a person's life in ways that can never be recovered. And that is injustice. And it's a violation of the ninth commandment. So if we're going to obey this commandment, we need to renounce slander. We need to refuse to spread misinformation. We need to be slow to render judgment and uphold due process. And then fourth, here comes the positive flip side of the command. We simply need to tell the truth. Positively, we need to tell the truth. We need to tell the truth about ourselves. Humble enough to confess our sin. Humble enough to admit our weakness. Humble enough to acknowledge our shortcomings and our failures. Humble enough enough to say, I'm sorry. Humble enough to come out on the short end of the stick and not always be winners. We need to tell the truth about ourselves. We need to tell the truth about others. We need to speak edifying words that build people up. We need to recognize evidences of grace in other people. We need to honor the, the dignity and the worth of the image of God in men and speak the truth about others. And perhaps most importantly, we need to speak the truth about our God. We are supposed to be witnesses, not people who bear false witness against neighbor, but those who testify and give witness to the glory and grace of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to the 12, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Listen, as believers, it is our joyful privilege and task to carry on that mission, to bear witness, to use our words not to tear other people down, but to use our words to exalt Christ and tell sinners about his death and resurrection. If you're not a Christian today, then the message you need to hear is about Jesus, that he is the son of God who laid down his life to atone for our sin, to pay for the lies that you've told to atone for and to deal with the guilt that you bear for the things you've said about other people that were wrong, for your pride, your selfishness, your greed, your bitterness, your jealousy, your hatred. Jesus died for those things. He died so that you could be forgiven and cleansed, so that you could be made new. That's the gospel. He died on the cross and rose again three days later so that People like us who have violated God's law could be saved. You can't keep the law. That's why Jesus came. He fulfilled it perfectly and paid the penalty. If you're not a believer today, that's what you need to hear. The law is supposed to show you your sin, and it's supposed to point you to Christ. Christian, 
What you need to hear today is this is how I'm to live. And and it points us to Christ in the sense that we find comfort and forgiveness for our failures in the gospel. And we find motive to live in a different sort of way. And we find a new purpose, a new message to speak, a message of hope, a message of life, the good news of the gospel. We bear witness to the truth. Let's tell the truth to the world about Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our mouths, our words, are to carry forth that message, to speak the truth about Jesus, to tell the world of the hope that is found in the gospel. The God of truth expects his redeemed people to walk in the light, to speak truth, to uphold righteousness and justice with our speech. As we read his word today and we understand this commandment, let's be careful with our words. Let's speak well of others and let's openly proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ as witnesses, faithful witnesses to his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, it is convicting to recognize the many ways in which we fall short. As it says in the book of James, if someone can somehow control the tongue, then they've really arrived. That would be the mark of wholeness and perfection because it is such a difficult thing to tame the tongue. We recognize the danger of sinful words, the damage that our speech can cause. We're convicted this morning, Lord, because there's none of us that's done this perfectly. Perhaps there's even recent sin that's represented here in this church, sin that's not yet been confessed, sin that has not yet been dealt with biblically. I pray that any among us who are guilty of slander, of lying, of deceit, of bearing false witness, I pray that we would come quickly to your throne and confess our sin and acknowledge our need for your grace today. God, I'm thankful that you love and forgive sinners like me. I'm thankful that though these sins are truly an abomination to you, that the cross is bigger. I ask God that you would help us to set a guard over our lips, that we would honor you and express love for others with our speech. Lord, this is so different than the way that our flesh is naturally bent, and it's so different than the way the world around us operates. But God, you call us to be different, and you've made us new creatures in Christ through the renewal and and the regenerating work of your Holy Spirit. The old things have passed away, and we've become new. God, we want to be different. Make us a different kind of people. Make our families different kinds of families. Make this church a different kind of church that is careful to obey you and honor you and to love others with our speech. Lord, we recognize the binding nature of the moral command of the law. Do not bear false witness against neighbor. We thank you for showing us what your will is. We thank you for your grace that restores us when we fall. And we pray that your spirit would empower us and enable us to honor you and to obey you 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.